I, I think she's just handled herself admirably despite all the attacks that she has faced. Such a Rachel. <laughs> We gotta address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Rachel Vindman. I'm Jasmine Clark. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. Last week, we talked about how extremists are trying to distract us and keep us from dealing with real issues that actually affect our kids, like hunger, because what's more damaging to a kid's health and ability to learn, the gender of one of their friends or going hungry? So this week, I sat down with Admiral Rachel Levine, who works for the Department of Health and Human Services. She's also America's first openly transgender four-star officer. Admiral Levine has been doing some great work to protect kids and make sure that no students go hungry. And before that, we'll be joined by Mark Jacobson and Ellie Agar with Hunger Free Colorado. I'm excited to hear more about their work on Colorado's ballot proposition for free school lunches. But before we get to all of that, how are you guys doing? Rachel, welcome back. I know you missed last episode, but I'm here to tell you, I think this episode will be the most dramatic episode of the season. (laughs) The most dramatic rose ceremony. Yes. Uh, And Jasmine... Are you looking a little less stressed now that the Georgia legislature is out of session? I don't feel like it because I'm also (laughs) still in uh, what is now final season at Emory where Mm -hmm. I also work. So um, I just traded one stress for another. (laughs) We have a lot of ground to cover. I don't know where we want to start. So I was thinking, let's start with Judge Kazmierk finally ruled on Miffy Pristone, Miffy. There's a stay for, I think, a week, right? And then we could all lose access to Miffy Pristone. So that's where we are as a country. I, I don't understand how one person kind of has this ability to do this. It's it's very strange. And he we expect this a long time ago. He did it, you know, late in the day on a Friday, Good Friday. Maybe that was his secret symbolism, which is just really personally just offensive and upsetting to me. Mm-hmm. But I also want to say something else, and you guys may or may not agree with me, and that's okay. Ooh, buckle but up. But I did read that AOC was just telling President Biden to ignore it. And I mean, ignore it with an executive order. I don't know if that's possible, but ignore the law that, I mean, you know, if this is our process, this is our process. We have to follow the process. I I feel strongly about that. So if there is a wiggle room in, in here, a legal wiggle room, okay. But we can't just ignore something that a judge said because we don't agree with it. I think the point that she's trying to make though, and I, I mean, I could be wrong because I did not hear exactly what she said, was that the FDA is very much within their right to approve and disapprove of drugs. Like that is literally what they do. And I think there is an argument out there that uh, this is just judicial overreach. And the the FDA does not answer to this random judge in Texas. Yeah, well, that makes more sense. And then if you think about it, that one judge said this, but then you had another judge. I yeah. uh, don't exactly remember what it was that said the complete opposite. Washington State, mm-hmm. a federal judge. So then that begs the question of which judge gets to be the judge that says this is what 
the law, quote law is. I think the doctor is the right one uh, <laughs> in the FDA. Exactly. When in doubt, it's women and their doctors. But you can't. So that also means it's going to go to the Supreme Court, which I don't have high hopes. I don't have high hopes for given, you know, the history of what we've seen the Supreme Court do recently. But also then you have breaking news about Justice, you know, Clarence Thomas <gasps> of all of the crazy funding that he's gotten. Oh, my gosh. And didn't disclose. I'm so tired of this two systems of, you know, of, of just like what's OK for one side and what's OK for the other side. Oh, and yes, it is frustrating that we're following the rules. And then you have people who just don't think the rules apply to them. And it's really hard. But if we're going to get back to a place of normality and a place of, you know, rule of law, law and order, we have to respect our systems, um, but we have to harden them as well. And, and that's so much of what we're doing is to see the will of the voters, the will of the people. And I, I think so many times the will of the voters is is not being represented. I mean, I we got to talk about Tennessee. I mean, my goodness gracious. It's craziness. It's anti-democracy. It's tyranny. It just was not, it's not the way our country is supposed to be running right now. But so what happened was, uh, we all know what happened with the Nashville shooting um, at the private school. And after uh, that shooting occurred, of course, people are angry and they want to see action by their representatives or their legislature. And so they went to the state capitol to protest. And their protests were peaceful. There was no violence. There were no uh, police officers bludgeoned with uh, flagpoles, uh, you know, feces spread across walls, windows broken. None of those things happened. But what did happen was three representatives, Representative Justin Jones, Representative Justin Pearson, and Representative Gloria Johnson went to the well to uh, stand in solidarity with those protesters. And they got a little disruptive and broke the rules of decorum. Oh, no, the decorum. My, my, where's my smelling salts? I know, I know. Oh, clutch my pearls. But they they spoke in a, a, a megaphone or bullhorn to still continue to stand with the protesters. The people who elected them. <laughs> yeah, and the people who are... You know, they're speaking for not just the children of Democrats. They are speaking... For every single child, public school child, private school child, whether your child is in a secular school or a religious school, regardless, they were speaking for these people and they uh, were expelled. Um, And by they, I mean, two out of three of them. Only two of three. (laughs) Were expelled. (laughs) Guess which one? Yeah, I know. Oh my gosh. Surprise. Jasmine, I know you must have been very shocked by which two. So we have two black men versus one white woman. If I were doing this, I would just kind of make it uniform and a little bit less obvious, but uh, okay, you do you, boo. And I literally said that. I was like, I feel like they were like, yeah, it's racist. What are you going to do about it? Like, I really feel like that's exactly what they did. (laughs) Oh, that one guy, I saw this clip. I mean, he's so bad. Wanted to call one of the representatives boy. Yep. I mean, like it was yes. he and uppity so wanted. Yes, I mean he so wanted to do that. I mean, meanwhile, 
One of the people, one of the people who voted to oust Rep. Jones and Rep. Pearsons is an admitted sex offender. This would be GOP Rep. David Byrd, admitted sex offender, admitted to sexual misconduct with high school girls he coached. This person was not ousted, right? Because decorum is so much more concerning to them than the sexual assault of high school girls. And that says everything. And I think they not only, I mean, like just, it was blatant. They're doing it to silence them. But what they really did is they just gave them a platform and a megaphone for the whole country to listen to. Absolutely. You have a visit by Kamala Harris and you have the president paying attention now saying, whatever you say, we're going to make sure everybody hears it right now. So we just talked about how like, it's like rules for, for thee, but not for me. Well, another thing they do is weaponize words that have been used against them and other situations. So, for example, the Speaker of the House called the protests that were happening, these peaceful protests that were, for all intents and purposes, probably loud. And he probably didn't like the words that were being said because they were basically asking him to do something. But he said it was probably worse than January 6th. Oh my God. I think that is significant because they are trying to turn any protest, anytime people stand up for themselves, speak out for themselves, exercise their first amendment rights, anything that they do that is in any way considered quote, good trouble, they're going to label all of those things insurrections and they're going to do it over and over and over again. And so we need to be very mindful not to fall into this trap of letting them devalue what happened on January 6th mm. and also try to change the meaning of insurrection. Yes. So mm -hmm. that anytime people want to actually do the right thing, again, not bludgeon police officers, not rip down barricades, not, you know, smear feces on the wall and take zip ties into a room and with the intent of tying up members of our Congress. We we cannot let them take turn peaceful protests into insurrection just because they don't like what's being said. Yeah. I mean, we can see for our own eyes. Like, let's look at the pictures. Like, if you have not seen pictures, Google them now. Like, you can see the crowd. I am looking at it right now. Mostly women. Actually, whole bunch of young people and teenagers. Yes. And what do you see them doing? Standing there and they're chanting and they're holding sides. This was not the insurrection. I love that they showed up. Yes. They knew what they were going into. It wasn't going to be a friendly audience and a friendly crowd, but they were willing to do it despite that. And that's the will of the people yeah. and you, the repercussions and what happened is definitely not good, but it's it's not all bad because they're showing us who they are and they're they're trying to combat it because that's the only move they have right now because they know they don't have the numbers. And the whole nation is now seeing the numbers in Tennessee. We are now seeing how many people really support uh, Rep. Johnson, Rep. Pearson and Rep. Jones. Like this is where the majority lies. And it should hopefully I hope it's now more clear to everybody else. And you know, let's talk about Wisconsin. Yes. Let's get a, get along to some good news. Not just good news, great news. Uh, amazing. News. Yes. <laughs> Can we call her Judge Janet? Because I her name is Protasewitz. Judge Janet won. Did you guys hear her walkout music? 
Lizzo, it's bad bitch o'clock. And I was like, I love it. Yes. Get it, Judge Janet. I was like, oh, my God, this is huge for Wisconsin for maps. Not sexy, but let's talk about it anyway. Right. But also for reproductive rights. This is huge for Wisconsin. We could not overstate it. And I am so excited about our our, our next guest that we're going to yes. talk to. Sorry to like I'd step on anyone's toes, but it is the perfect example that we've been talking about since November of this, this exact thing of let the voters decide and they're not going to decide on this craziness. No, we are not going to forget. We need to take the wheel and decide what policies that we want in place that really help voters and most people. Yes. So speaking of all of this good news and getting the types of policy in place that help people, we've uh, talked about how great it was that voters in Colorado said yes to a ballot measure to make sure no kids go hungry. So let's talk to some of the folks that made that ballot initiative happen. Hi, Mark and Ellie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes. So we've talked several times in the past about how inspired we are by the successful ballot initiative to feed kids in Colorado. Could you tell us more about how Proposition FF came about? I can share a little about that story. We, you know, with when COVID hit, um, the federal government provided waivers that allowed school districts to- The best. Yes. <laughs> Loved it. Highly recommend. Absolutely. And it was is one of those things where all of a sudden- School districts were able to do this, and everyone was like, "Why haven't we done this before?" You know, we we had a lot of conversations with parents about how you know how do we keep this going, and and not just how do we keep this going, but what is what should school meals look like going forward, and what are the barriers to making sure that uh, the meals that our schools provide are not just free and accessible to all students, but are high quality and um, the kinds of foods that. Uh, that, that parents want their kids to have access to. And, you know, here in Colorado, that's healthy food, that's locally sourced food, that's culturally relevant foods for different communities. And so we pulled all that together into a comprehensive uh, piece of legislation called Healthy School Meals for All that initially we were trying to get through our state legislature, but it's a big budget ask. But we got the legislature to actually pass a referred ballot measure. So they they showed their support through that, that but then also took it to the voters for them to, to support us. Love it. Were you surprised, Ellie, by, I have a daughter named Ellie, so I really like your name. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surprised by um, how it passed 55 to 44? Were you surprised by that wide of a margin? Uh, yes and no. I will say I was so excited to see that it had what I would consider strong support to see that 55 to 44. So That's really strong. Yeah. But even up into election night, I was like, oh man, did I talk to enough people? Did I do enough? Is this going to make it through? Um, you just have that anxiety. And so to see it have such strong approval, even in districts that are more affluent, that will be seeing the impact of this tax increase, you know, they understood it's feeding children, you know, like it's such a, a basic thing that we really can get behind together. So that was pretty exciting to see. Also exciting to see that, you know, there's support across the you know spectrum, right? So some of the more conservative counties in Colorado voted for this mm-hmm. as, you know, as did some of the more liberal counties as well. So it's, it's something that there's just broad support, right? Feeding kids, making sure kids have access to meals, like pretty straightforward. You know, if you show up in the classroom hungry, you're not gonna be able to focus, you're not going to be successful our public schools are going to are, are going to fail if our kids are are not ready to succeed when they show up. 
So one of my favorite things about this policy is kids get treated equally and every kid goes in the lunch line in the same exact way. So I have a friend who actually ran for Congress uh, and she had the free or reduced lunch and she, it was a different color card. So when she went through the line, she told me a story. She said, everyone knew which lunch you got because everyone could see the card. And she said, most tight, most days she just went hungry because she was embarrassed to use a different colored card through the line. And I had never like heard that from a child perspective saying like, I would rather go hungry than be embarrassed when I go through the line in a different way than my friend. And so one thing that I love is that every kid goes through this line the same exact way. Yeah. I mean, like you said about kids choosing not to eat instead of being singled out, we still hear that all the time. We had a youth council actually weighing in when we were doing this work. And so our youth council would talk about what they were seeing in their cafeteria, in their classrooms. We talked with, you know, a lot of moms. I even for myself, when I grew up, there was a point in my childhood we needed to be on reduced price meals. And I remember talking to my younger sister and she's like, I don't want to do it. It's not something I want to be singled out for. I don't want people to know about it. And it was honestly a conversation we had where I was like, this is our responsibility to help our parents in this way. And we need to do this program. And that was a lot of pressure to put on a young child. It is. And so the idea that this is something, like you said, where everyone goes through, there's really zero distinction from one kid to the next. It allows more kids to participate when it was free for everyone during the pandemic, participation actually went up by about 30% because kids could actually get the food they needed and they weren't being singled out anymore. So we know it matters. We know that kids are thinking about this and having to face this when they go through the cafeteria line. That's just something that they shouldn't have to face at school. They should be you know, thinking about how to multiply and long division and all the crazy stuff we make them do. Exactly. And it's a whole lot easier to think about those things if your stomach isn't growling. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have lots of data that shows that fed kids do a lot better in school, both academically, but also just behaviorally. And to me, it just seems like something that's such a no brainer. Absolutely. We have this idea that we have this meritocracy, but if every kid isn't fed at school, we don't have a meritocracy. But I also think some listeners might be really surprised at how many kids don't have reliable access to healthy meals. We think that like, I don't know, that like it has a look, right? You know, a certain family or a certain thing, like it, this kid needs those meals, but that's actually not true. And a lot of, we have a lot of misconceptions about that. So could you share some information about why organizations like Hunger Free Colorado are needed? Well, yeah, I mean, hunger is definitely more pervasive than, than, than folks realize often. Um, our surveys found that third of Coloradans struggle to put healthy food on the table. And for households with children, it's over 40%. So this, is, this is impacts a lot of kids. And I think I sometimes talk about hunger as an invisible issue or an invisible problem mm. because... You don't know by looking at someone what they're struggling with. And it can also be for a point in time. You know, you have a medical emergency, you have a job loss, you have some sort of other kind of life crisis that comes into play. You might be struggling for that period of time. And maybe it's not something you always have. And so I think even knowing that someone was okay at one point doesn't mean that they're always going to be there. So having programs like this that are just available and they're there is so critical. I mean, even now, post-pandemic, we know food prices are higher. We know we're in record inflation. There's still, even early 
2022, we were looking at data. It was about a third of families that were still struggling to make sure they could put food on the table. And when you looked at Black households, you looked at Latino households, you were looking at two and a half, three times the rate of white households. So we we all saw the state legislator in Minnesota who, you know, said that he's never seen a hungry person in his state. Uh, I, I guess maybe they don't wear a sign or something. But I mean, there are people like that, or there are people who aren't so bold to say things like that, but they're thinking things like that. Mm-hmm. How do we talk to those people? Um, how do you talk to people or broach the subject? I mean, you're an expert, we're not, but what would you say about that? I mean, I think what's really important from our perspective is is folks who, who are uh, struggling with food insecurity and hunger too be at the table and sharing their own story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In addition to giving other people that space, I think if you have your own experience, just being willing to share in that, having that courage, you know, normalizing it, because we probably do have friends and family who are struggling in one way or another to make ends meet. Yeah. And so the more we can talk about that and say, it's okay. You know, I remember even early in the pandemic, I was taking my son into breakfast. I remember seeing another family like, oh, are you going into breakfast? And he's like, oh, no, I feed my kid at home. And there was this sense of like, I, much. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm so proud to walk my son into the cafeteria and be like, well, we're going to breakfast. Good. <laughs> because it's like, this is what we're doing. And then, you know, I'd see some other kids coming in later as the school progressed. And you know, it's like, yeah, it's great. And I'm going to help normalize this. And so and I gained some just... time in your schedule, by the way. Oh my gosh. It was beautiful. <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> it was, I know I was going to say that, like, look for people over COVID, I got super time poor. A lot of women got really, really into huge time poverty. And like, just having that universal lunch was just like a little thing that like, I never made my kid a lunch over all of COVID because it was so much easier. And I think it was, it was, I was already supportive, but a hundred times more now I'm so supportive that it just makes it so easy. If you are listening to this and you can't relate to this, we probably cannot be friends. And I mean that (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, but I just can't like, when my daughter went to school and like she would buy some and take some days. And on the day when I would like look up my calendar would say like Ellie lunch at school. It was just, yeah. I mean, the happiest like calendar, like <laughs> notification to wake up to at 6am. And that is who I am. I need you to accept that. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I admire you all so much. And we talk about you so much. And I, I mean, it's just been a, such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. And I hope that other states are are learning from what you did so that we can provide this for all students. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was so lovely having Mark and Ellie come join us. Uh, I know we are all big fans of their work and I really think other states are going to follow suit and we will see more states follow suit, but it is also disappointing to see states like North Dakota who voted it down. They didn't think uh, kids should have school lunches and they didn't see it as the job of the schools But they also recently voted to give themselves uh, reimbursements for meals whenever they had to work for the state. I don't even understand how you sit in the same seat and push your button, red or green, and you are okay with pushing no to school lunches and yes to $45 a day or not a day, $45 per meal for myself. Holy cow. For a meal? Yes. You know how many pizza Lunchables you could buy <laughs> yes, with that? Yes, exactly. Yeah, if I had to choose between myself getting a per meal stipend and 
children getting free breakfast and lunch, I would 100% every single time, like not even wavering, choose the children every single time because children don't have jobs. No, and shouldn't. Wait, let's be clear. Children shouldn't have jobs. GOP, before you get in there, children shouldn't have jobs either. They have a job. It's called school and they should be in school and doing their job at school. And while they're there, they should have lunches. Like this should be how society works. And most people agree with us. I'll bet if you put a ballot measure of like meal reimbursements for politician versus school lunches, school lunches would win. And sorry, Jasmine, but I think the meal reimbursements might lose on a ballot measure. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Like I can, first of all, I don't even have time to eat half the time I'm there. It's not even about how much it costs. It's just the fact that I don't have time. I know. All right. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Admiral Rachel Levine. People of Colorado chose to make school lunches free by directly voting on a ballot proposition. But most decisions that affect our kids' experiences at school happen locally, right in our own school boards. And with all the extremist candidates running for election, it's more important than ever to know what a school board does and what you can do to help. Join us for a virtual troublemaker training on Thursday, April 13th to hear more about what school boards do. And again, on Thursday, April 20th, to learn how you can speak out at a school board meeting like a pro. You can RSVP by going to redwine.blue or by clicking the link in the show notes. Our guest today is a pediatrician who now serves as the Assistant Secretary for Health with the Department of Health and Human Services. She also happens to be our nation's first openly transgender four-star officer and the first to be confirmed to an appointment by the Senate. Admiral Rachel Levine, welcome to the Suburban Women Problem. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so glad you could join us. So your background is in pediatrics and particularly in the overlap between mental and physical health for kids. What drew you to pediatrics and how does that experience guide you in your role with the Department of Health and Human Services? Well, I was first drawn to pediatrics in medical school at the Tulane School of Medicine, but I was also uh, very influenced by a professor we had there, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Thomas, who was doing this new field. Now we're talking in the early 80s, this new field of adolescent medicine, specifically the care of teenagers. So uh, that became my goal was to go into pediatrics and then do a fellowship in adolescent medicine. And that's what I did at Mount Sinai in New York City. Wow, that's so important. I know we've been talking about uh, on the podcast recently about the mental health issues that our teenagers are having. And I feel like I don't know, from your perspective, it feels for me that this is an issue that we haven't talked about much. And we're really starting to see bubble up as more of an issue when we're talking about mental health, especially for our teenagers. Is that something that you've you know, also come across within the data that we're increasingly having to deal with the mental health of our teenagers? So that's exactly right. You know, This was an issue even before the pandemic uh, in terms of the number of mental health issues that our teenagers had, but it has been clearly exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, really to a crisis level. Mm. And our great Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, has spoken out about this uh, regularly. Um, there's a new survey out this year in 2023 called the YRBS, which is the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is published by the CDC. And they indicate really very, very severe issues with the mental health of our teens, 
uh, particularly looking at two populations, particularly girls and the LGBTQ community. Uh, and rates of depression, rates of anxiety, rates of suicidal thoughts, rates of, of sexual violence, which are very, very concerning. And so that is something that, that we are working on at HHS, and, and our office is very involved with that, looking at the mental health of teens, looking at suicidal ideation, as well as, of course, the overdose crisis, which continues to plague our nation. That's so important. Uh, so last year, President Biden hosted the first White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health in over 50 years. And last month, they followed up by launching a challenge to end hunger and build healthy communities. It feels unthinkable in America, in as wealthy of a country as we are, that we have kids going hungry. But the reality is that for many kids, school lunch is the only meal they can count on each day. Could you talk about the issue of hunger and the importance of school lunches? Sure. This is a, a very important issue that our office um, is working on, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health. And our office was actually lead uh, working with uh, the Domestic Policy Council and the USDA on organizing that White House conference that you spoke about. And uh, there is an issue of food insecurity in our country, particularly for young people and for seniors, for our elderly. Mm. Um, and there's even a more nuanced way to look at this issue. And this was coined by the USDA, by our Department of Agriculture. And that's not just food security, but nutritional security. Mm. Meaning just having access to any type of food versus, for instance, fast food, does not really relate to nutritional security for our young people and for our families. And so uh, all of these issues are critically important, the issue of hunger. And so we have put, uh, the White House has put out a, a roadmap and a blueprint for ending hunger in America. And, and they talked about an implementation plan earlier this year. And in addition to how, how food is medicine mm. and how food relates to health in terms of obesity and diabetes, um, as well as hypertension and heart disease. So there are so many nutrition-related issues. And our office working with the USDA is lead right now, working on the 2025 uh, Nutritional Guidelines for America. I love that. I personally think, I mean, so I'm probably biased as the mother, mother of young children who I would like to see universal lunches for everyone. But I love that we have seen, I think with these school lunch policies, that it's a popular policy too. We see states like Colorado and other states who are, voting to have better access to school lunches for all of our kids. I think it's a really important program and probably one that we underestimate. I know there's even research, recent research in economics showing that when kids go to school hungry, they do worse on standardized tests. They do worse on college admissions tests and they're less likely to go to college, which means they're also less likely to be unemployed. Like it's just a snowballing effect. Well, as a pediatrician, I, I know how important nutrition is from an early start, you know, with early new nutrition. And the Women, Infants, and Children program, the WIC program uh, through the USDA, but also the importance of of uh, school lunches uh, for some schools, you know, school breakfasts. And I want to highlight a program that I I saw here in in, in D.C. in Washington D.C. when I met with Deputy um, Undersecretary of, of Agriculture. We went to the Watkins Elementary School and we learned about a program called the Fresh Farm Food Prints Program which is where children learn how to grow food, how to harvest the food, and then how to cook it and its nutrition. And it was this really great program for school-aged children right here in the Washington, D.C. 
I love that. And I know you also mentioned the USDA earlier. So something I think people don't realize is the support from the USDA for programs like school lunches and how those combine. And a lot of times those school lunches and other programs to make sure people are fed can be also very bipartisan in where you see support coming from those programs. It can also, it can often feel very polarized and like we have nothing we can agree on, but that's actually not true with a lot of things. And I think school lunches and just making sure people are fed is one of them. I, I think that that is true. I think that the importance of nutrition for our children is something that um, should be and is a bipartisan issue. Awesome. So you've done a lot of work with eating disorders and body image as well. And I know you talked especially already about, um, you know, the issues that women and trans communities for teenagers are having with their mental health issues and, you know, related to that is body image issues. So America is also in the strange position of having so many people going hungry. And at the same time, you have so many people, especially women and teenage girls that are intentionally starving themselves. So how do you think we got to such an unhealthy relationship with food and what can we do about it? Well, I, you know, I, I agree. I think that we have a very challenging culture where at the same time we have people going hungry. We have people who have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder and other related eating disorders. You know, um, uh, a, a academic physician, uh, Dr. Kelly Brunell, ha had said in a, in a talk, I remember, uh, that we, in, in many ways we live in a toxic food environment. You know, we, we live in an environment where there is poor nutrition um, in, in terms of fast foods and the like, but then a, a culture that emphasizes body image, particularly for young women, although not exclusively, that, can, that is one of the causes that can lead to eating disorders. And with the mental health challenges that we, we are having, we are seeing an increase in eating disorders uh, in our country. And I hear from my colleagues in the eating disorder treatment community about the challenges that they're facing uh, with the number of referrals they have. So lots of challenges that face our nation. Agree. So I think it's also interesting you talked about um, not just access to food, but access to healthy food. And when we can see some of the issues we get, you know, well, if you just stop eating at McDonald's, right? But what a lot of people don't realize, and I'll talk to my classes, is like when you face scarcity in your budgets, and that's the cheapest option, and cheapest can mean by dollar values, cheapest can also mean time. I know for me, for me, sometimes I go to McDonald's for dinner with my kids because I just don't have time. We're running between, you know, sports and this and we're like you know what tonight we're time poor and we stop at mcdonald's because we don't have time to do anything else let alone if you're budget poor and that's literally all you can afford is getting a one dollar hamburger and so you have all of these things kind of snowball to you know and relate to each other they, they absolutely do you know any one trip to something like mcdonald's is not going to harm our health or our children's health oh good it's when you do it on a very <laughs> on a very frequent basis and for some people as you've mentioned whether they live in rural areas, uh, suburban areas, or even urban areas, there are nutritious food deserts. Mm -hmm. there, there's just not access to nutritious food, especially as you mentioned, that is affordable. So really the default option is things like fast food. And so, you know, as a, as a special treat, it's one thing, but if that is your staple, then that's not going to lead to health. And, and in too many areas, we do have uh, nutrition insecurity which is something that, that, you know, we're very pleased to work on with our colleagues at the USDA. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Salads are more expensive than burgers oftentimes. So, so you recently attended an event put on by the human rights campaign. And at that event, Presic secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre said something powerful. Your identity is not your weakness. It is your superpower. I'd love to hear more about how your identity as a transgender person powers the work that you do. You know, I, 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 yes, I was at that event and I heard her say that, which I thought was, was really brilliant. I, I think that, that when you are truly being who you are and you are expressing your true identity in, in any way, mm-hmm. um, whether that is um, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity or in other ways, that that empowers you. I, I think it empowers you as a person to, uh, to help people and to, 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 and to be, uh, to be compassionate and to be successful in, in terms of your goals. Um, and so, um, I have certainly found that. Uh, and it was tremendously empowering to me when I was able to come out and, and transition, which was 12 years or more. And, um, and felt that I, um, you know, didn't have a secret. Having secrets, I think, can be very challenging to people and can lead to challenges with their self esteem. So when you are able to truly you know, express yourself to your, to you, to the world and your community is who you are. That's very, very empowering. I love that. And like, I feel like authenticity is the game now with, especially how we interact with each other. Like it's so important to be authentic, which also means letting people be authentic. But we also know that we get better solutions when we have a diverse group that come together and to talk about all of their different experiences and that we can come up with better solutions. And we've got plenty of problems we need solutions to related to health and otherwise. So I am such a, um, a powerful fan of diversity in all of its myriad and wonderful aspects of diversity that we have in our, in our country, the, the beautiful tapestry of our country. And I think that's exactly right, that, um, that uh, diversity makes us stronger because it brings all of those different perspectives to bear as we face the challenges of our nation. So we talk a lot about intersectionality when it comes to discrimination, voting rights, and social issues, but intersectionality matters in health too. Can you tell our listeners more about how race, gender, sexuality, income, and other factors play a role in our health? Well, I, I think that intersectionality is critically important. You know, COVID-19 has shown us the depth and breadth of the health disparities that exist in our nation um, and has really laid bare, you know, the um, the, the size of the iceberg that, that is there in terms of health disparities. And so that is absolutely one of the priorities of, um, of Secretary Becerra and HHS and, and my office as well is looking at health disparities and advancing health equity to communities that have been underserved. Uh, of course, that includes communities of color, the African-American community, the Latino community, the American Indian Native Alaskan community, the AAPI community, and, and more. And that would also include the LGBTQ community. And then there are those who sit at that intersectionality of being underserved and and intersectionality of discrimination in America, and that would be transgender women of color. Uh, transgender women of color are not just at risk of discrimination or harassment, they are actually at risk of, of violence and murder. Um, you know, we have Transgender Day of Remembrance in November where we say the names of transgender people who have been murdered in the United States, and the vast majority of those are transgender women of color. So we have to remember uh, that intersectionality. But it also brings up what I what are very important issues called the social determinants of health, and those are, those are those other factors that influence health 
that we do not usually think of as health factors. So economic opportunity, um, housing, education, transportation, nutrition, we've been talking about, the environment, so many other issues that influence health and can lead to these type of health disparities. And now, in our current climate, actually the political environment of the state where you live is itself a social determinant of health, as we're looking at women's rights um, and women's reproductive rights, as well as looking at the, the rights of transgender individuals. Um, and so all those complicating factors influence the public health of our nation. Oh, that's so important. So I remember during COVID when we started to see a disparate impact by race with who got COVID. And I heard some rhetoric from some politicians, even in Ohio, of, well, it's something that those minorities are doing, right? They are causing this. And it turns out it wasn't. So we talk a lot about, you know, in my field, you know, correlation versus causation, right? Did their, their race cause it? And it turns out it was the occupation that they tended to be in. And a lot of it was occupation differences that we weren't talking about is they're in occupations where they're much more likely to interact with a whole lot more people. And they didn't have the same access to remote work that a lot of workers do. And when we just see the data, we can come to some really bad conclusions when we don't think about all those intersections with economics and occupations and income and all the things that you just mentioned. That's right. And I thought the same thing when we talk about disparate outcomes of even like infant mortality rates differences for um, young black babies, right? Like, and I, and I kind of pose the same thought, do you think it's the baby's fault? Like the baby is doing a bad job being born or something like, come on, we know something else is going on there. So, you know, one of the, the, the big challenges that we face in our country is maternal morbidity and mortality, mm. the illness and death among um, pregnant women and women after after delivery. And it is almost entirely among the African-American community. And it really a lot has to do with the health disparities that women face in our nation and the health, particularly the health disparities that black women face in our nation. Some of it might be socioeconomic, but there was a recent study that showed that it wasn't. It didn't have to do with their with, with their income. It had more to do that they were a black pregnant woman in the United States mm. and, and the challenges that they face in our healthcare system. So another issue that we are working on hard at HHS. Yeah. That's important. Um, you know, so yeah, I know some of the issues are like, like just listening. Are we listening to women when they're, you know, saying they're having issues and are we believing women and treating them as experts in their own bodies and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. That's exactly right. So it's been such an honor speaking with you today, but before we let you go, we always ask our guests a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready, Admiral? I am ready. What's one success story you can share with us from your lifetime of work in public health? So one success story was really one of the first things I did in public health when I became the physician general of Pennsylvania, which is to write a statewide standing order for naloxone, the life-saving medicine that reverses overdoses. And so I wrote a standing order that anyone in Pennsylvania could get that medicine based upon my prescription as a state health. Wow, that is really important because I noticed having that on a person, like especially, you know, EMT or whoever that is, right? So I've heard, I actually heard from a person recently who always carried it on them. And so they weren't an EMT or a doctor, but they carried it on them right. and they actually saved someone's life because they had it on them. So I don't have one. I was like, oh, I should look into that and get that. Oh, it's going over the counter now. <gasps> oh, I did not know that. That's so important. Not yet, but, but it's been approved by the FDA. So in the next couple months, it's going to go over the counter. You can just buy it. Wow. That's awesome. So what was your very first job? My very first job was working at a medical research laboratory 
um, at Boston University School of Medicine when I was in high school in the summer. In high school? Yeah. So did you always want to go into medicine from a a young age? From around ninth or 10th grade, yeah. Wow. All right. I'm very impressed. That is, and you stayed on the path. So I wanted to be a pilot and then I found out real fast. I don't like flying. So I changed, but I do like data <laughs> that stuck. All right. So how would you describe your personal style? Um, my personal style is very collaborative. Uh, so I work to collaborate and to uh, try to communicate well and to coordinate with people I'm working that is awesome. I hear that about a lot of women is that they have this style of collaboration and let's get there in a way that we can work together to get to this solution. Love it. So what's the best advice you've ever been given? You know, I'm going to go from a, a book I've read. So this was a, a book by Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell was a professor of comparative mythology um, in, in the 70s and 80s. And he, he wrote a number of books. Um, and one of them was really about finding your bliss and uh really trying to find what makes you happy and, and and not just not just happy from a from a maybe a more superficial point of view but what really makes you feel fulfilled i love that so i actually just talked to my class about extrinsic motivation so motivating people through you know wages and that but intrinsic motivation right what makes you happy and fulfilled and like for me part of my i'm so i've got an air force background like are you part of the mission and how are you contributing to this mission uh that's so important and i've also heard from business owners that they hear these new workers these young whippersnappers they're really into this intrinsic motivation of really wanting to feel like they're part of the mission and isn't that some of them said it like isn't that annoying i'm like wow i think that's really great oh i think that's great yeah <laughs> all right that is the end of our rapid fire questions where can our listeners find more about you and your work well, uh, you can find more about um, myself and our office of the Assistant Secretary for Health at um, hhs.gov. Awesome. Thank you so much. We so appreciate hearing from you. And it has really fit in with so much that we talk about on the podcast with nutrition and our young people and taking care of our kids. I know so many listeners are going to be so excited to hear what you've had to say. So thank you again for joining me on the Suburban Women Problem. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Welcome back, everyone. Amanda, I was so excited that you uh, were interviewing Admiral Levine. She is kind of a kind of a hero of mine. Um, I followed her, and I, I think she's just handled herself admirably, and you know, kept her head down and worked um, despite all the attacks uh, that she has faced. But such a Rachel, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's you know just speaking the truth, like. The idea that the political environment and your the state where you live is now a determinant of your physical health, mm. you know, whether it comes to Medicare and Medicaid, reproductive rights, trans rights, it's true. And, you know, we need to talk about it more. I mean, I, I live in Florida, you, you know, I mean, I live in Florida now and, and this is an issue. It, it didn't dissuade us from moving to Florida. I, I hope that I can make a difference and a positive impact and, you know, we, we thought about moving to a blue bubble, but then also what does that do for people in, in places that, that, you know, people who, who can't, who, who can't do that. So all that's to say, I, I love that she is speaking her truth and saying this and not silencing herself, you know, kind of self-selecting to not be 
part of this conversation because of the criticism, because, you know, at the end of the day, that's nothing more than the GOP and the trolls and everything want with us to self-censor because you're afraid of the attacks. And so that that's really why I admire her so much. And I really appreciated your interview with her. Oh, it was such a great conversation. I went afterwards, I went and was like, oh my gosh, I told Casey all about it. And I forgot to tell him before I did the interview. And he was like, yes, Nora and I met her in the White House when we did, when we met, uh, when the president had the Hanukkah thing that they got to go to. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I think she would even remember us because we got to talk to her for a while and she was amazing. And I was like, she was amazing. And I wish I would have known before I interviewed, but it was still super cool. Uh, that we've both now gotten to meet Admiral Rachel, and she is awesome. I love it. All right, let's transition to our toast of joy now. So, man, I know there's a lot going on, but I'm all about the celebrating right now. And Wisconsin is a huge deal for the state, for the nation. I'm super excited, and I am really feeling hopeful. Even with all the stuff going on in Tennessee, like I think we just have a lot of eyes on it. So I'm ready for everyone's toast of joy today. All right, Jasmine, what is your toast of joy? All right. So my toast of joy is to a field trip I went on with my daughter. Um, it was to the Junior Achievement Center. And I don't know if y'all have heard of this, but it's like um, what they got was like these different scenarios of like their life. And so some of the kids uh, were married with children. Some of the kids were single with children. Some were married without children or single without. So all these different scenarios. They also give them their salary, the job they have. And then from there, they have to take all this information and they create a budget and then they go shopping. I think the funnest part for me as an adult was watching the kids stress out when they were like, what? Why do the groceries cost so much? (laughs) Or them being like, oh man, I can only afford a two bedroom, but I have four kids. Where's everyone going to (laughs) sleep? So I really enjoyed being there. I really enjoyed interacting with the students. The students also found out that I was a state representative. Um, And so uh, one of the kids was like, oh, can I have your autograph? And I just thought that was really cute. And I'm okay with that because I think that we should start getting students at that age excited about all levels of government. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much about me as much as it was about the fact that they were interested in someone at the state level Mm. of politics. More legislation is done at the state and local level than the federal, and it's not close. Yes. So if you really want to make a change, sorry, all you senators in Congress in Washington, D.C., it ain't you. It's Jasmine. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. All right. So Rachel, what's your toast to joy this week? Well, I was gone last week, so I just have so much. I'm going to start with uh, we closed on our house today. Yeah. Uh, we are currently in Oahu, but our good friend, which is really the reason why we started considering Florida in the first place, um, we gave him power of attorney and he signed, you know, like a million papers that oh, you have yeah. to do when That's you a buy lot. a house. So it really saved our hands and that was great. And his wife is, I think, one of our most faithful podcast listeners. She literally listens like first thing in the morning, every Wednesday. Oh. So um, thank you to our dear friends. I won't out them by using their name, but just real quick. Um, I got to tell this great story because we had an Ellie on the program 
So um, our old dog, Boots, um, it, she's almost 15. And the iguanas in Florida are really driving her crazy. <laughs> she's like, what is that? <laughs> so the last time she got out, uh, she just goes for the iguanas. We thought it was the ducks, but then we realized it's the iguanas. And um, and then we thought she would come back and she didn't. Oh, no. She didn't come back that night. We woke up just devastated the next day. You know, we posted everyone, like all the apps, you know, next door, which is, oh my God, so awful. Yeah. But on um, Facebook <laughs> and all these places, but every neighborhood has their own thing. But if you're not part of that group and it's a closed group, then it's really hard. Yeah. But this, this woman who lives like a, the neighborhood kind of across the canal from us, she is just an angel and she helped us and she was looking at all these sites and post cross posting. Anyway, we woke up on Saturday morning. My husband had a bunch of messages and a woman named... Ellie, her son, Benjamin found our dog and had her at their house. And so we were able to go get her and they are a Ukrainian Jewish family who immigrated in the eighties. Her her real name is Eleanor, just like my Eleanor. And she goes by Ellie and it was just so special. And we were able to, they also are from Kiev, like my husband and the connections were just great. And it was a great story. And we got our dog back and we fixed all perimeter, uh, (laughs) places and yes the breaches and we're actually getting a new fence which is money I didn't think I was gonna have to spend but I do have to spend it so those are my those are two toast to joy all to my new home we are just so so excited to start this new chapter and you know it's 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 a new fresh start it took a long time but I talked for a long time I'm sorry Amanda (laughs) what is your toast to joy my toast joy has to be to judge she in it. Mm. I have just been so excited ever since that win. It really like stuck with me. So my toast joy is not only to judge Janet, but to all of the people in Wisconsin who made their voices heard, who showed up. And I saw those long, 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 long yes, lines of were. young people. Yes. I was like, it was clearly Yee! unexpected because they, yes. they looked like they were not, I mean, they didn't even have these lines for the midterm and for other elections. So I think that's really important. I love Gen Z. Yeah. Like they're just like my fave right now. They're showing up in a big way and they showed up in Wisconsin and I am so excited and I'm still excited about it. And it is just an excuse for me to have a toast <laughs> every evening. I don't know why that one just really stuck with me. And I, so thank you to Wisconsin and to judge Janet for Wisconsin. I think it would be a beer I should have in their honor, but I don't really like beer. I just, <laughs> you do cheese. I, I love cheese. Yeah. I will also have some, Ooh, some wine and cheese. Yeah. That is what I'm going to do. Yes, there you go. So thanks so much to everyone for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone, you know, we'll see you next week on another episode of the suburban women problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red, Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, and our project manager is Lindsay Quist. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red, Wine, and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.